Welcome to the Living in Alignment podcast. My name is Amy Landry. Through a collage of conversations, here we distill mindful living and timeless wisdom within a modern, everyday context. Thank you for being here. Mark Bredner is a luminary in the world of yoga and meditation education, boasting over five decades of devoted practice. Known as a teacher of teachers and Australia's longest-serving yoga educator, Mark is the creator of Yoga Coach and is a certified somatic psychotherapist. He has dedicated his career to empowering yoga teachers to become transformational leaders. Beyond training thousands of yoga and meditation teachers, his expertise has led him to become a body-mind coach for Olympic gold medalists and world champions in both swimming and surfing. His passion and focus aim to foster a new generation of yoga teachers, providing essential skills for this deeply transformative practice and teaching. Also, before we move on, a quick heads up before you listen further. Due to his travels, Mark did have an unstable internet connection throughout the duration of our chat. However, please do stay with us as Mark shed so much insight and wisdom throughout this conversation. You do not want to miss it. Mark, it's so lovely to be able to have this opportunity to chat today, which is well-timed with your visit back to Australia right now to teach. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for the invite. It's great to be here. As we always do here on the podcast, uh, I'd love to set a foundation for our conversation today by delving into your personal story and timeline. Uh, I know that yoga has been woven throughout most of almost your entire life thus far, um, and you have such a meaningful mission to nurture the current wave of, of yoga teachers in our community. So with that, please take us through your incredible what I would say is a dharmic path that you've been walking for many years now. Yeah, it's true. I was very fortunate. Um, Mum was a yoga teacher. She was one of the first in Australia. She was one of the. She was teaching before IYTA, and uh, she was one of the teachers that helped set that up in uh, I think early seventies. <laughs> Her mum was teaching um, late fifties, sixties, and she taught at home. We grew up in Cronulla, kind of blue-collar surf town just south of Sydney, and she taught downstairs in the rumpus room uh, twice a week, all ladies. It was always packed. And I would say, you know, when mum was teaching, it was more a comprehensive yoga then than it is now. I mean, she would always do the shavasana, the checking in, um, do some asana, pranayama, meditation. There's always mudras and bandhas. There's always different concentration exercises, um, kriya, all of those sorts of things. And I just took to it. I don't know why. I don't know if it's karmic or whatever it is, but I just felt yes. So I started when I was five and it's been, yes, that through thread in my life the whole time. I, I started apprenticing with my mum when I was about 15 at Sutherland Hospital. We used to work with uh, Down syndrome kids and, and asthmatic kids. And that was really, that was an eye-opener because I got to see really what a big impact 
of our presence, connection, um, breathing, stilling the mind, what a big impact it had. You know, like the kids with asthma were getting big changes, the Down syndrome kids, uh, that was different. But the concentration and the being able to be still was really, it really stood out. I'm like, wow, onto something here. And I started teaching when I was 18. I've been teaching ever since. But like a lot of people, my focus was asana-based. And I would say a little bit performance-based. I was doing, you know, Iyengar yoga. I was doing Ashtanga. And, you know, I was really committed to getting to the next series and the next series. And uh, I was working on about the third series. I... I was also partying pretty hard. I was also training pretty hard for, you know, triathlons. I was doing that some professionally and consequently burnt out. You know, I had all of my dysfunction going on and all of that sort of stuff, which I was trying to ignore and distract myself through exercise, but also through yoga, if I'm honest. And it really flipped my life upside down and it set me on that path of, well, you know, what's life all about? You know, how do I achieve balance? What am I here for? All of those big existential questions. And so everything changed. I kind of left the life that I had done and I'd gone on the road. And you know, I packed up, I went to India. I was going, I've been going backwards and forwards for decades. But I was meeting these beings, men and women, that just were happy for no reason. And they were doing amazing things. It looked like they weren't even trying, but they were feeding thousands of people, building schools, building hospitals. And I wanted to know what were they practicing that I wasn't practicing? You know, what did they know that I didn't know? Mm. And I kind of went deep into that. So that's where it took me beyond the asana side of things. And I went more into the pranayama, the kriya, the tantra, all of those types of practices, looking at the whole system of yoga, you know, and what it was designed to do, you know, that whole yoking, moving past a personal sense of identity, merging that with something larger. Mm. And in part of that process, you know, I was I was running teacher training and started that in about '96, and I wanted to I wanted to incorporate all of those different aspects. But I wanted to do it in a way so that the students would understand the importance of it. I think a big part, and it still is, a big problem with the yoga market is that, you know, we have the visible and we have the invisible. And the invisible is always where the power is. And But the students, they don't have an understanding of it, so they don't have the confidence to teach it. And the regulatory bodies are a big part of that because let's say we do a 200-hour training. When I first started, it was 1,000 hours. It was 200, but then we started doing advanced diplomas in yoga for 1,000 hours and then market pressures back to 500, then back to 200. And if you do a 200-hour training, you know, 120, 130, that's physical. You've got your arsenal labs, you've got your anatomy physiology or adjusting and your sequencing, all of those things. So the other stuff, the pranayama, meditation, consciousness is kind of just tacked on. Yeah. And so I wanted to work with my teachers to teach the invisible aspects 
and give students the same confidence that they had with teaching asana than uh, with they had with asana with teaching those particular practices. So there was a lot of what's happening when we do that and mm. why do we do that and why does it connect to that next bit and what does that do and how can I teach the students that? Like what's the science behind it? So there's a lot of delving into all of that science aspect and then trying to bridge it. I've always tried to bridge science and spirit together as a big part of that. It's been a big part of my journey. Mm. And I guess the other aspect of it was, you know, niching. You know, I went into corporate for a long time and I went into elite sport. I was working with, you know, Olympic gold medalists and world champions in swimming and surfing. And the cool thing about that is I kind of saw them as yogis. They... Because if you're going to be the best in the world at anything, you've got to have an incredible single-pointed focus, and that's really what the yoga was about. And the only difference was their focus was external, the yogis were internal. So when, when that changed through injury or retirement or whatever, a lot of those athletes struggled. They had a difficult time, whereas that didn't happen with the yoga side of things. So now it's really about, you know, how do we live a high-performance life? How do we build personal power and evolve spiritually. And that's really my focus in what I'm doing now. I love all of that. And I can very much appreciate that. And it's so evidently important that there is more of these subtle aspects of the practice woven into teaching in general classes, but particularly teacher trainings. That's one thing I've noticed over the years, other teachers saying that they feel very underwhelmed and even lost after completing a training because they kind of still feel like there's something missing. Uh, so let's take your emphasis on the importance and the essential value of, you know, the more subtle, let's say, aspects of Mm -hmm. of yoga and let's talk about prana so in in your in your words what is prana and why is this understanding really fundamental to the practice and the path of yoga well prana is you know simply our life force and other systems would call it chi or ki or spirit or science might call it bioenergy you know, there's this animating force. And if we put it under an umbrella, it's just electricity. You call it electricity. It's what animates us. It's what switches us on. And it's the interface. If we look at yoga as a whole system and if we look at body, energy, mind, and then beyond that spirit, it's the interface. It's what connects the physical body to the causal. And it, what, it allows us to download our the greater intelligence, uh, the limiting force, the breaking force that we have in our life, which we might call karma, the greater intelligence, which you might call the accelerating force. And it allows us to download that individual spirit and download it into a physical body. So we have that same, same as we do in the physical body. We have subtle anatomy. And that subtle anatomy is fueled by the prana, by the life force. And when you understand how that works, because basically, you know, through our chakra system, through our nadis, we are receiving, transform, and transmitting energy. And that's just all based on source, the energy, the frequency, 
and the vibration of the energy, which is just Tesla's not, you know, 369, the secrets mm-hmm. of the universe, understanding 369, energy, vibration, and frequency. The, the yogis knew this intimately and they knew it through direct experience. So they don't really talk in those terms. They're just talking about it as spirit. And a lot of the, the yoga, when you go to India and you look at the gurus, you know, they're not, they're not talking at that like anatomy and physiology. They never talked about that. Basically, they were looking at a body and going, where is this body conscious? Where is it not? Where is this body showing up? Where is it not? Where is spirit flowing? Where is it not? So the body has shaped itself around where it flows and where it doesn't, which nadis are open, which aren't, which chakras are flowing, which aren't. So what different shapes, you know, asanas can I give this body to open it to energy? To open it to open those subtle currents back up again. And once we can open the physical body up, then we can start to refine it through the subtle body, which is really the home of Kriya and Tantra. And that indirectly works on the causal field. So we start to set aside all of the limitation, all of the separation. And we start to go beyond the mind and tap into that greater intelligence. You know, whether you call it, in yoga, we call that Brahman. You might call it God, you might call it Holy Spirit, you might call it the Tao, you might call it the Dreamy. American Indians would call it Wonkatonka, the Buddha field. You know, all the traditions talk about that. And that that is the aim of all of those traditions to connect back into a higher possibility. We, we just talk about it as um, Brahman, but it's vitally important to be able to work with Prana, understand that and understand how to work with with that within the the subtle anatomy. And you know, we often talk about pranayama, but most of the teachers and in the West, that's just understood as the mechanics of breath, uh, the biomechanics and the biochemistry. So we we breathe in the oxygen, but the oxygen also carries the prana. Mm. And then Korean Tantra says, well, then what happens then? You know, because it's because you then you start to work with the correlating physical anatomy, which is the subtle anatomy. And what do we do with that? How can we channel it? How can we direct it in certain ways to live a better life? Hmm. It's interesting because that kind of ties back into what you said earlier. You know, we're so focused on the physical, and in yoga teacher trainings, there's so much physical emphasis. And that includes, you know, physical westernized anatomy and physiology, which, you know, you and I would both agree is is imperative and really valuable and important. But there is so much less emphasis placed on this subtle yogic anatomy, which is probably a very Western modern label for it, as you sort of implied that in India, they don't even think about it. They don't conceptualize it like that. It's just it just is. It's part of, of reality. But let's so let's kind of expand upon this and hone in a little bit on um, you raised pranayama. And so pranayama, I know you've mentioned this before. And uh, years back, I taught a, a workshop sort of tying in this name or this word. But pranayama is very much a bridge in a practical sense between the body and the mind, or let's say between asana and, and meditation, what do you believe are some of the common, uh, let's say misconceptions or misunderstandings that you come across in this particular area in terms of breathing, breath work, pranayama? <laughs> well, well, I mean, they're two different things, right? The breath work 
as I mentioned before, I mean, breathwork's trending at the moment. You know, a lot of people are jumping on board. A lot of teachers are just jumping in and, and running, you know, um, breath journeys, for example. You know, they do weekend workshops and they start running breath journeys. The problem with trends are that people jump in and they're not done in sequence. They're not done in order. You know, a lot of the time, let's say two more practice, for example, and hyperventilation breathing and creating heat. You know, which is called TUMO. And, you know, those practices were done, you know, when I've been up in India and I've been up in the Himalaya, you know, all the monks, a lot of the old monks, they were doing TUMO practice. So, you know, they would just walk around, be all rugged up, they'd be walking around just in their, you know, white beater singlets and go, oh, it's toasty today. And, they learn that practice of building the internal heat, but it's an internal practice. It's not an external practice. So a lot of the Western practices get externalized and there's catharsis and there's movement. So people think that there's something happening. But again, the power always comes back to the invisible and the internal practice. But we kind of shy away from that. And those two practices were part of a tantra where let's call it lamdre or colored chakra where a whole bunch of stuff was put in place first, initiations that had to happen, then you would learn that practice. And then once you learn that practice and you master it, then you learn these ones. So there was a sequence of the whole thing. A lot of how it's getting taught now is out of sequence. It's just throwing everyone in there. And it raises questions. And you have to think about, well, is that useful? Is it going to be beneficial long-term? Is it beneficial for most of the people most of the time? And the, the, the modern breath work, you know, they're only working at the physical level, right? They're doing, as we mentioned a couple of times, they're doing um, biomechanics, which is the muscles. They're looking at the biochemistry with the main players are oxygen and carbon dioxide. They're also, they're doing cadence, which yoga does. So you've got your inhale, your exhale, the pauses in between, you know, we call kumbhaka. Um, and then creating all the different rhythms and movements of how you could work within that. The yogis do that as well. But then pranayama is working with the bioelectrics. You know, it's working with spirit. And so that's the difference. And what we try to do, what we're doing with breath coach is bridge, teach all the science and then teach the spirit and bridge them together. Hmm. Because I think it's useful because if you just go to India and you learn the spirit side of it, it doesn't western mind wants to know why why do i do that what's the importance of it why should and if you don't if they don't know why they won't do it yeah. in, in india it's different but here tell me why i should do that and it doesn't seem like i'm doing much so what's the benefit of it mm. and if you don't understand you know well this is what's happening with the blood gases and this is what's happening with the ph and this is what's happening with the autonomic nervous system and then when you join that practice onto it then that neutralizes this and then you build on this and it creates that and it leads you into this um that just won't do the practices so i think that's important for us as western teachers to have that science attached to the spirit Hmm. that's just you know how it goes along something you said about uh kind of individualizing these techniques and these practices, it made me think about Ayurveda as well, because an Ayurvedic approach, which is inextricably linked to yoga, is that, well, 
the technique is not going to be necessarily good for all or seasonably appropriate. You know, as you said, you're up in India freezing cold and these guys are, you know, they've understood how to, ugh, I almost hate to say this cliche, but like hack the system. They know it's, it's they're individualizing what they're doing. They know what's seasonably appropriate. And this is, I think, what's also being lost both in this breathwork trend and even within yoga itself. I don't know if you want to expand upon that at all. Well, even Ayurveda or the Chinese system of health, they're limiting in a way because they're, they're culturally based. So even if you look at them, they'll say different stuff. They're both coming from ancient systems, but they'll have different teachings or they'll disagree on certain points because it comes back to culture, it comes back to environment, it comes back to, you know, for example, you know, Ayurveda places a lot of importance in dairy, um, you know, ghee mm-hmm. and milk and but but milk is not what it was back then, you know, in those days. And, you know, 80% of India's, you know, vegetarian and culturally they're vegetarian, they function best that way. So it's quite it's quite different. And because one of the statements that you said before is that I'm sure we both agree that, you know, anatomy and physiology is necessary, you know, but I don't necessarily agree with that. I, I get it. I understand. I do agree and I don't agree. Hmm. I agree because we don't understand the invisible and we're not really ready to do the work to go there and it's been commercialised into a physical practice. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, a lot of the yoga now is just an alternate fitness offering. I mean, when most people come to yoga, they're coming because they'll say, you know, I want to get flexible or I want to get um you know, stronger or I want it for my health. It's been turned into that. And I know teachers get upset with that comment, but the majority of teachers, the reality is if you're teaching an hour class, it's 50, 55, if not an hour, Mm. physical posture. So there's no argument. It's an alternate fitness offering. But they'll say it's conscious movement. I'll say, well, I can can swim and be conscious. It doesn't turn it into yoga. Yes. So so it becomes that. and, And... the, the other reason where I don't agree with it is because the yogis don't talk about it at all, right, in their texts, you know, the anatomy and physiology. If you go to Hatha Yoga Pradipika, right, they don't talk, you know, they might say this benefits the spleen or it helps with kidneys or such and such. Mm. But they were looking at it as, as I mentioned before, a movement of spirit. And I would rather that we focused our training and our education in developing people to see with different eyes Mm. to see to learn to see a body and see where that's moving or not because when you do that and you start to open spirit into the body then the anatomy physiology just automatically the physical anatomy physiology just comes along for the ride yeah and ideally in the system of yoga and the eight steps you know the physical body we're just trying to work create that stir and sukkah so that your body becomes a gateway to the subtle, your body becomes a gateway to the divine. That's how it's set up. And once you balance it all out energetically, right, or you open it out to prana, you start opening into the subtle body, then the causal body and, and beyond. But I do get it. I do understand why we do that. Um, it would just be my preference that we <laughs> Yeah, no, and and that mark that deeply resonates for me too. And I think that, I guess the 
the perspective I was coming from was more, you know, understanding Western anatomy and physiology is helpful in terms of injuries, recovery, prevention, and how we can support people in still engaging in asana. But simultaneously, I yeah, that totally lands for me in the sense that all it's also doing is reinforcing this sort of obsession uh, with the physical practice of yoga in terms of asana and making everything about about the physical body rather than sort of really encouraging people to be more directed to yeah the let's say more subtle or internal practices so it keeps it held in that place it keeps it held in that place and i think you know it's become more and more commercialized and it's all good i mean whatever it is it's all good anatomy western anatomy physiology it's all good it opens people to different things but we but then we want to ask the questions and the questions that are what shapes it and takes it into the future. Mm. I mean, I think it was the, the Super Bowl 2014, I think, when I saw, you know, big Nike ad, you know, all the world watching and this, you know, big yoga promotion. I'm like, oh, my God, it's fully become commercialized now when it's playing. The question that arises for me there is, you know, where is the transcendence? Where is the transcendence gone? And what happens is we just lose that. And the more and more it gets commercialized, the more and more it gets monetized, we lose the transcendence. Mm. But it gets, but it does get to that breaking point where we go enough is enough. So then we start asking those questions. It, it brought a lot more people to yoga. It brought a lot more awareness to yoga. It, it opened a lot more people into that entry point of working through the body which is very necessary. It's part of the eight steps. It needs to happen. You can't open to spirit and have a body that is not healthy, that mm. whether it's got impurities in it and it's, you're eating a bad diet and all that sort of stuff, it just doesn't work that way. But it's good to start asking the questions and I think a lot more yoga teachers are asking those questions. You know, what's next? Where do I take this? How do I work? How do I access this invisible? Who's someone that can teach me that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Oh, I think students are also. And given that yoga, it's it's an interesting observation. Given that yoga has become incredibly compartmentalized, you know, we have yoga, which is really asana over here, and then we have breath work, which is sort of pulling from mm -hmm. aspects of pranayama, and then we have meditation, seen as oh, I don't do yoga, I do meditation. You know, everything's separated, but simultaneously this commercialization is merging yoga and when i say yoga again i really mean asana with so many unrelated things like beer yoga and you know all of this crazy stuff how do you particularly with all of your experience and all the years of, of practice and studentship behind you how do you feel that we need to move forward to maintain integrity and the, to maintain the profoundly potent elements of the yoga tradition, both for students or practitioners, but also for teachers as well. Well, I mean, all those like you know, beer yoga and goat yoga and you know, <laughs> like twerking yoga, whatever it is. It, I mean, it's just it's just silliness and fluff. I mean, those things they come because. See that what happens? The yoga market is oversaturated, and again, it's a, a big problem is yoga regulatory bodies because they are very, you know, ambiguous and low in their standards, and and being able to be a teacher and running teacher trainings, <laughs> the standard was very low to be. I mean, you just fill out the paperwork basically, mm. you know, and you can run 
a teacher training. And so, you know, a lot of teachers, they, you know, I see people, I see teachers on teacher trainings now and they go, Oh yeah, I did my teacher training two years ago. And now, you know, they're teaching on teacher trainings, but they're mm. teaching on the physical side. And that's, that's where we keep going back to. Um, when, when we've got an oversupply of uh, teachers mm. and an undersupply of opportunities because a lot of studios are closing, a lot of the big chain studios are closing, there's less opportunities, especially through COVID, then you become a commodity. And when something becomes commoditized, it's just then based on price. And once it's on price, it's a race to the bottom. I mean, we're seeing a lot of studios just doing a month unlimited for like 25 bucks and things like that. And there's just too many teachers there. And not only that, because it's a physical focus, you're you're also competing with the fitness industry. So yeah. all of those all of those things make it very hard. And when some when the when the slice of the pie, when when it has become commoditized and when someone's trying to get the slice of the pie, they just get gimmicky. And that's when we start seeing goat yoga and bee yoga and all of those silliness things. I mean, they don't last. They don't stick around. But they just come because the market's saturated and as teachers, it just become commodities. Mm. And so, yes, you can really stand out in the market if you go deeper and you take it further because a lot of people more and more now are very much struggling on the planet. You know, they're, they're, they can't keep up on the treadmill. They're falling off and... There's a lot of mental health issues. There's a lot of people struggling with energy issues. There's a lot of people struggling with health issues. I mean, they're all part and parcel and they don't know what to do and they're looking for answers. And I, I really feel like yoga can be at the leading edge of health, well-being um, and transformation on the planet. It just needs fully fully educated yoga teachers into the whole system of yoga, not just the physical. Look, a lot of them do the physical and they do it really well. They're great, great asana teachers, really, really mm. good. But but if you really want to stand out and make a difference and have a career and take it further, then you need to understand the whole system. You need to have the same competence on the invisible aspects. Um, and not only that, I think it's important moving forward that we start to niche because I think we're going to get known less um, less and less for what we do, e.g. a yoga teacher, mm. and more and more for the problem that we solve, you know, yes. because there's a lot of big problems, you know, in the planet and they're coming down the pipeline thick and fast. So when you've got the whole system of yoga, you, you can help people on all levels. It's, it's a very pragmatic system. It says you've got problems in your external world, here's some things. You've got problems with your body, here's practices you've got problems with your energy with your mind with your consciousness here's things to do so we're, we're very fortunate there it isn't segmented you know you've got the whole system at your fingertips and when we can do that and bring it to a particular niche and solve their problems you can be you can impact a lot of change and you can be very profitable as well I suppose it, it really highlights too that your niche let's say in business jargon is really you and you are what you practice and what you study and what you embody and and that's going to deeply resonate for people and something else that kind of landed when you were speaking is and this is something that I've talked about a little bit on social media and that is the the maturation of a yoga practitioner and the teacher and how their own 
practice and studentship evolves. And uh, uh, someone I know in the US, she's an author and a, and a an Ayurvedic practitioner. You came from a very big, heavy asana-based yoga background. And she was talking about online how her yoga now is not asana. Like she's super advanced Ashtanga practice. And she's like, I'm going to the gym now because I'm that's my physical exercise, how I'm taking care of my physical body. And my yoga practice is so much more subtle. It's, it's the pranayama, it's the meditation, it's the inward stuff like that's yoga and really trying to come out and sort of say, look, I did all this asana for so many years and it's only got me so far. And you start to obviously mature in your path and your practice, you know, and even you, like you're a huge surfer, like you, you get your body moving in so many different ways. And then your yoga is over here as come on, like, let's look at all these subtle practices. Let's go beyond the body. And you teach so much about the breath, which is so important, but let's even what's beyond that too, especially that scientific thinking, you know, we can improve brain health and, uh, you know, our nervous system and stress resiliency, which is all super essential in our modern world and life. But I guess the question is like, what's next? Yeah. I mean, I haven't done any, I, I haven't taught an asana class or I haven't done any asana for 15 years. I don't need to. And in fact, a lot of the, long-term asana teacher that were, they were focusing on the asana create a lot of problems in their body mm. from hyper hypermobility and in the early days you know like the 80s where iyanga was very popular um some of the long-term teachers there you know having shoulder reconstructions hip hip reconstructions knee reconstructions plates put in their necks because they were holding postures for too long and going out of alignment and then creating stress in the joints and doing it over and over and over again. Now they keep it a big secret. No one says anything about it, but it's a reality. Mm. And that's just, that's just the truth. And, you know, some of those other styles where there's a big, big, big focus on asana is seeing people forcing their bodies into these postures without any breath, like they're pretzels and they're in the pose, but they're, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's ridiculous because there's no, you're bringing no life. The, the nadis aren't. There's no life in it because there's no nadi. There's no energy moving through the nadis. Because yeah, you're in the posture, but you can't even breathe. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It makes and, me. It makes me think of people who are completely exhausted in shavasana and think that they're having this deeply restful experience when they're actually just completely smashed and exhausted. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we're getting people doing all these hyperventilation, pre holotropic breathing, breath journeys. And they're cathartic. Oh, I hate you, mom. Oh, I'm convulsing and things. And they go, oh, that was amazing. I had a big emotional release. And really, they're just re-traumatizing themselves. Right? Because, because, you know, when you hyperventilate that like that, you're putting yourself into sympathetic dominance. Mm -hmm. You're actually depriving your brain of oxygen up to 40 to 60%. It's major. And... If you do that long enough, yes, you get hallucinations and you do that long enough, yes, you will release cellular memory, but you're forcing and pushing and it's effort. And once you're in that place, oftentimes there's no witness there. You're just back in the child state and it's a re-traumatizing. You'll see a lot of people go home and they're like, oh, flows all over the place for two days. And, <laughs> right? Mm. And, of course, people do have awesome experiences as well. Right? Mm. But I'm just saying just throwing in a bunch of people and getting them to hyperventilate is not a good thing. It's risky. I mean, it's it's risky. You know, I in the 80s it was called rebirthing. It's just rebranded, right? And, you know, I I did a lot of it then and um, I had one of my friends that had kidney failure. She had a lot of trauma 
in her life early on, sexual trauma. And uh, she had kidney failure during the rebirthing. I mean, it's crazy. And, you know, that's why in the yogic science we have that moon sun fire because the moon is saying, okay, first of all, you have to stabilize your mind. And if once your mind is stabilized, then start to bring some sun in, start to bring some more prana in. And as you bring more prana in, is your mind still stable? If it is, let's bring some more prana. Is your mind still stable? Yeah, bring some more prana. Is your mind still stable? Or actually, I'm feeling like I'm getting a little bit angry and irritated. I feel like I'm not sleeping well. Okay, let's just pull it back a little bit. Let's stop there. And and then as you do that and you and you get your mind really st- then you start to work with the fire and then you work with then you fire it up, then you're working with the spirit. Because for the yogis, the first part of that, that hatha yoga, that ha and the ta, the energy balancing energy of sun and the energy of moon was about personal power. And those lower three chakras, you know, below the diaphragm, you know, once you have once you feel like you're connected, you're grounded, you have security, you have safety, then you feel like you're part of a rich emotional world and you have a strong sense of self and a strong sense of worth, then you have personal power. You can trust in your own authority. You live in your own sovereignty. If you don't, if you don't have personal power, you give that authority over to others, you know, and whatever the narrative is, whether it's, you know, government, parents, sibling partner corporation marketing whatever media right you just let yourself be informed by whatever that narrative mm. is and and we spend our life trying to resolve the dilemma of i'm not i'm not good enough don't have self-worth uh, the world's dangerous whatever it is right in those lower centers so that whole part of stabilizing the moon and building prana balancing the energies of sun and moon once you can do that and you've got personal power, then the heart rests and then you can truly go into serving others right? because when you move out into the world, your relationship with others, is the heart's not conditioned. It's not like I'll give you my heart if you make me feel safe. I'll give you my heart as long as you'll tell, tell me you'll never leave me. You know, it's like all that's done. You're in your power. Now you can start to work with the spirit. So build personal power and then evolve spiritually. Now, if you just try to do hyperventilation breathing, which is more fire practice, right, that's bringing spirit into the system. But if your system's kinked, it's like a hose that just goes, <laughs> right? That's what happens. It's all over the place. There's no, there's no open flow. Yeah. And so that causes problems. The yogis never did it that way. The way that we say in yoga coach is, how do you create the maximum amount of change while being kind to yourself? And so a lot of this stuff of the forcing and effort, it works. So you can do the Wim Hof type stuff and do hyperventilation breathing and then do, you know, a breath hole after that and then go into cold water. The idea is going into sympathetic dominance and then flipping into parasympathetic and then flip it, keep flipping with the idea that you get conscious control of your autonomic nervous system, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're in sympathetic dominance, you can switch it off, you can bring yourself into parasympathy. And for a lot of people that works, but the thing that you're teaching your nervous system is, okay, you can get you can get to rest, you can get to parasympathetic, but you get there through effort, pushing and striving, and that's what you're mm. teaching your nervous system. I don't want to teach my nervous system that. I don't want to teach my students that. 
I want to teach him how to get the maximum amount of change while being kind to ourselves. How do you do that? The yogis always did it systematically, progressively, consistently, you know, building up into that personal power and then building your spirit. These other things, and they seem exciting, but they're, it's, a, it's a forceful and pushing. And, of course, it draws, especially young men, it draws them to those types of things as well. But, you know, Wim Hof, by his own admission, would say it's, what he's doing is not about spirit. It's about performance and adventure sure. stuff and uh, mm. immune system. And, uh, you know, a lot of people get fantastic results. People get results from holotrophic. Again, it's all good, but there can be consequences yeah. if you haven't prepared yourself for those things. Mm. And I suppose it comes back to just, yeah, stabilizing the nervous system, stabilizing the mind. And even that's, you know, and uh, the other crazy commercialization of yoga when we see it with Tantra too, it's like, oh, let's do all this sex and sensuality. But really, traditionally speaking, it was all about, okay, let's stabilize the nervous system first before we start taking intoxicants and doing all this crazy stuff. And when we, when we kind of separate everything as we're kind of doing and then treating everything as its own separate approach and practice, we lose that holistic kind of uh, overall modality that's far safer and sequential and logical in terms of that path going inward. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's what we do in the West. We take the marketable bit and we turn it into the practice and then we mistake the mistake the vehicle for the destination so mm. in yoga we do that with asana in tantra they do that with sex i mean out of the systems but they're only a very small part of the system yeah you know when i work with like with rinpoche you know they're incredible tantricas and they study it from a young age and even though they can't practice the sex bit they learn it all it's just a, a small part on this massive text and within my tradition when they look at tantra you know you, that that breaks in those two syllables break into tanoti and triati. And tanoti is um, how do we how do we keep moving and expand past our limitations? How do we go past our comfort zone and open into more and more possibility? And triati means, well, how do you take that and take it back into life? And a tantrika is someone that it's life meeting life. It's someone that whatever unfolds in front of them they meet that head on, they meet it and embrace it and they move on to the next moment and the next moment. We're not trying to push it away. We're not trying to get something else. We simply embrace life as it unfolds in front of us and that's what that's what Tantra is, mm. yes? I mean, that we're trying to do that in sex when it's done correctly. Uh, but, but even so, like those things get distorted because let's say in Bali, up in Ubud, at certain studios, they got had, had a big whole big problem around you know sleaziness and you know elements of that coming into you know the teachings and and stuff and so you know when when things are taught out of context and then the people learning them haven't prepared themselves and their ego is not uh, you know healthy or balanced then it can easily you know they can assume a certain amount of power and then abuse it. That's the thing. Like the yogis put a lot of emphasis on the fire aspect, and you you can build personal power, but then you can from that personal power we we want to we want to evolve our spirit and serve others. But you can build that personal power and use it for manipulation. You can use it for abusing others. 
you know, you can use it just to try and um, for yourself enhance the material, you know, and get a lot out of the material. Mm. And we could say some of those secret societies, conspiracy theory, right, go down that pathway. You know, they understand those secrets. They've been passed on through generations, but they're not in, so much involved in the spirit. They're involved in being able to, you know, have control and power over the material. And so that can happen as well. Mm. It's that falling from grace, I think, that we we can see happen yes. time and time again, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, that leads me to sort of think about, you know, how do you, in this season of life that you are in, how are you living yoga? Like if I asked you that, I knew nothing about yoga. How are you living yoga? And from that, from that insight, what is there to teach the listener? Like how can we live yoga? We, we've looked at all these sort of separate um, physical approaches and modalities, but how can we start to really understand this tangible sense of, oh, I'm living yoga in my day-to-day life rather than going to a a class or a workshop, for example? I think, you know, science would agree. Same the yogis would say, you know, physicality is just an illusion. It's just energy vibrating at a slower rhythm. And, you know, the question is a lot of people struggle with, how to be energetic beings in an energetic world that that appears physical, right? Mm. So we get caught in, up in that. So how do we become energetic beings? And if you look at the chakra system and you look, you know, the crown at the top and then, you know, Muladhara chakra at the base, you know, this is light, this is ether, this is energy. They all mean the same thing. This is high vibrational this is lower vibrational. So what happens is um, low vibrational light becomes matter. It becomes form. And then high vibrational matter becomes light. What we're trying to do is become more subtle human beings. So then the answer is, well, how do you do that? Because once once we take this light and this ether and we bring it down into form, you can make that very low vibrational, right? You can do that very low low vibrational by eating junk food, by having alcohol, by having addictions, by uh, over-sex, over-exercise, wrong foods, negative thoughts, negative emotions, being very set in who you are in the world, um, violence, aggression, shame, guilt, all of these stuff will keep you very low vibrational. Mm-hmm. And so... All we're trying to do in the yoga system is become more subtle human beings to raise our vibration so that we go from this matter, this density, back into light, eventually merging in. That's that's the deal, right? That's samadhi. That's the yoking of everything. So if you go onto a physical level, it just starts with, well, what are you putting into your – what are you feeding yourself with? Because the food, yes, we're getting – carbohydrates proteins and fats on another level we'd say well they're not so important it's about minerals and mineral salts and we could say on another level that's not so much important it's about prana so are you eating high vibrational foods are you eating high pranic foods and are you hydrating yourself with high vibrational fluids because we're 90 something percent water Mm. And then we have to look at it is 
well, you know, what are our thoughts? Right? Are they high vibrational? Right? What are our words? Are they high vibrational? What are our actions? Are they high vibrational? What are our, ha- what are our habits? Are they high vibrational? Because there's that saying, right? Watch your thoughts because they create your words. Watch your words because they create your actions. Watch your actions because they create your habits. Watch your habits because they create your character. Watch your character because it creates your destiny. And so you can do high vibrational, you can have high vibrational thoughts, for example, but your words are out of alignment with it. The way that you eat is out of alignment with it. So, you know, our thoughts are creating our reality all of the time. You know, our thoughts are shaping the light, the ether, right? And our thoughts have a certain frequency. And that frequency creates a vibration. So if you want to create a good life, the starting place is you have you, you have to have high vibrational thoughts. And then you want to get all those other layers inside with it. So you know, you work with someone or you just say, well, what do you want? How do you want, how, who do you want to be in the world? How do you want to operate? How do you want to see? What's the legacy that you want to want to leave? Well, well, that's the starting point. Because once we get that, we can say, well, do your words correlate with that, right? Are your actions correlating with that? And if they're not, what can we do? How can we start to align your actions back to that? If If you're doing an action that is, and uh, an addiction that doesn't serve you, how can we start to limit that in your life? How can we start to attenuate that so you can set it aside and let it go? Right? Mm. In, a, in a simple sense, it's almost about how can we live the most ethical life, not necessarily in a stereotypical sense of ethics necessarily, but could certainly mean that, but generally ethically toward ourselves as well as others and and, and the planet and so forth. But you mentioned uh, food and it reminded me of uh, you recently, very recently posted about fasting on social media. And I think that's something too, like we, society, we just overeat, you know, there's got so many people around the world that are starving and yet so many people overeating. And in, from a yoga perspective, yes, what you're eating in that high pranic quality is important but also not overdoing it and I think fasting is not a one-size-fits-all thing you know particularly in terms of male and female bodies and 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 so forth and seasonal life and whatnot but just letting your even just overnight that fast that extending that fast and so I don't know if you want to add something there about that and how that's um, brought value into to your path and your practice well of course fasting is in all the spiritual traditions it's in the bible all of that sort of stuff. And like from the Bible perspective, when they talk about Saturn, you know, Saturn and the planet and Satan, right, that correlates to acid and acidity in the body. And that, you know, like even though I've done yoga for a long time and I've done lots of, um, you know, healing work and personal development and cleansings and all those sorts of stuff, when I was younger, just because of my karma, because of the dysfunction in my family, I had a lot of rage, a lot of anger. I drank a lot. I had a lot, did a lot, a lot, a lot of competition exercise, which built a lot of acidity into the system. I ate, you know, I kind of at home three good meals, but I ate a lot of crap as well. And I had a lot of drugs and, um, you know, I built all that acidity into my system. 
and right into the tissues. Mm. So in the last number of years, um, I've really doubled down on, I, I just want to get all of the acidity out of my system, right? Because once that's out, it supports everything else that I was saying about becoming more subtle human being. Um, I have to come back to the, at that thing. I decided, well, I have to come back to this base level, you know, and, you know, maybe I can see it on my tongue, toting on my tongue, or I can recognize it in, you know, certain parts of the body not functioning as maybe as well as they could. Hmm. And so um, fasting is definitely the, the fastest way to do that, the best way to do it. And you can start off with intermittent fasting and, you know, do your 16-8, and you can build that out into, um, you know, uh, what is it, 20 and four, <laughs> or and then start doing one day a week, uh, not fasting. For a long time there, I was only eating, you know, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Um, wow. You know, I, was, I did start experimenting more with dry fasting. Uh, it's, it does purify that, get that out of the system quicker. It's way harder. Dry fasting, on those sorts of things when you're only doing it for a few days, it's kind of okay. But once you start going past three days, it's always important to get supervised uh, with those sorts of things, especially mm. dry fasting. But, yes, we totally overeat. And if you eat your three meals all the time, your body's always using energy, right, to digest. Yeah. And we don't even digest very well. So... When you don't eat, that gap allows your time, your body to kind of regenerate and revitalize and, and starts to consume the dead cells, right, that are in there, the cells that are kind of dysfunctional and starts to clean all those out. I mean, there's another layer of where that goes and the benefits of it, but uh, yes. And, you know, we as you, as you become more refined in your energy, you need to eat less. You need to sleep less. My main guruji... I've never seen him eat in 25 years that I've known him. I'm not saying that he doesn't eat, but I've never seen it. And one level I say, yeah, he doesn't eat. He doesn't sleep. He's incredibly dynamic. He's over 100. He's shiny. He's vibrant. looks like he floats. <laughs> so, you know, they're operating at a totally different level of system of possibility. That's usually beyond most people's minds because when I say that he doesn't eat, people go, bullshit. Go, yes, I understand that you can't grasp that, but maybe if you let's stay open to it, that that's actually possible. Mm -hmm. right? I know it's possible. I actually think we're designed to be breatharian. You know, we 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 are energy beings, and we you know we energy we operate off off the sun, and we get that sun energy through our food, and that's. That is, as you get more refined, you tend to go, you tend to move towards vegetarian, you tend to move towards, or you tend towards fruit. Like I, I'm, I eat mostly just fruit. Um, and I'm not telling anyone to be vegetarian. I'm just saying make movements in the right direction. For a start, stop eating most of the stuff that's in the supermarket because 90% of that's made in the lab, right? It's mm. not real. It's, there's hardly any food in the supermarket. You know, it's five, maybe five percent. Yeah. So just take steps to move away from that sort of stuff and the acidic, acidic stuff because acidity, you know, all, like all the 
all of the kind of virus germ bacteria stuff they kind of thrive in those environments mm -hmm. so if we can start to limit those it's it's almost like impossible to get sick once that starts clearing out once you clear that out in your alkaline system or if you do get something it will just be a very acute and it will clear very quickly. yeah you'll have that quick recovery time yeah for yeah. sure um and since we've sort of circled back to a bit more about you and your personal practices and and so forth this is something I do enjoy asking people. It's personal curiosity, but do you have any like maybe one or two books that you personally really recommend, whether they directly or indirectly relate to yoga, you know, that doesn't matter, but yeah, anything pivotal that you've read on your path that you think others should know about? I think from the breath perspective, uh, the oxygen advantage by Patrick McEwen is a good book mm -hmm. because he, the practices that he is teaching in there, they correlate with uh, a lot of the yogic thought. Um, so they're good, like about, you know, breathing less, you know, breathing less volume, um, mm -hmm. building tolerance to CO2. Yeah, that that's good. I, I really love the yoga sutras because for me that's kind of a, a map of the whole science. And um, Alan Finger wrote a book called The Tantra of the Yoga Sutras and why I like that is because it brings the, the sutras can be a little bit, if it's written by, translated by an academic, it can be a little bit dry and like, oh, hum. But when you bring it to kind of a living expression of it, it, it you know, a sutra means a thread, right? So you've got your threads and you can read the threads one by one. But once you go from, you know, 1.21 into 2.35 and that correlates to 4. Uh, you know, 4.15, then it becomes a tapestry, you know, and you're and you're weaving this whole beautiful life document, and it comes to life. And so I like that. Ah, mm, uh, the Kybalion, the Kybalion, you know, seven teachings of the Hermetic teachings, universal laws. That's a good one. I've not heard of it. Not heard of it. Well, I can pop all these into the show notes anyway because that the oxygen advantage is one I have seen before, but I have not read it. And um, that sounds really interesting in terms of, as you said, how it relates to the more yogic perspective, which is really important in weaving that back together. So, and yeah, wholeheartedly agree about the sutras as well. We can come at it from that academic perspective, which has certainly has value, but to be able to then take it deeper and look sort of more for the nectar and the secrets in the sutras um, makes it far more enriching for sure um mark i'd love to ask you um i'm just mindful of time before i let you go um well you you, you offer so much online and and now in person you're traveling in australia at the moment and maybe let's start with for anyone listening into this sort of as it comes out uh, in current time what have you got coming up soon next live yeah so we're in australia now we live in bali but we're in, the, in australia now and we're doing, you know, a whole series of workshops that are breath focused. Yep. So, yes. So we do the breath stuff. And so we do the science and the spirit. Uh, halfway through a teacher training, but um, we got that next weekend. The weekend after 16, 17, I think we do 16 uh, Central Coast, 16 Central Coast and 17th in Newcastle. Newcastle's a shorter one. It's more on performance. Um, then we're up in Brisbane, uh, I think the following week. And then then we're down back in Cronulla, I think, 
the weekend after. Other than that, we're doing med, uh, mind coach, meditation teach training up in Ubud, Radiantly Alive studio. Mm-hmm. 27th to the 1st. Twenty seventh of October to the first <laughs> of November, I think. Yeah, we have, we haven't sort of set anything set anything out for next year, but yes, we do a lot of online uh, offerings as well. Brilliant, awesome. And so, where yeah. is the best place to send the listener if they want to check out your trainings or anything you've got coming up? Uh, website yogacoach.com, is that right? Yeah, business is yoga coach. So yeah, yogacoach.com, and okay. you'll find it all. You'll find it all there. Um, and in terms of uh, social media, I'm assuming Instagram is also the best place. Yeah, I think Instagram is the best one. Uh, Mark.Bredner. Perfect. We'll, we'll pop them in the show notes for the listener as well. Christina Christina does all of that. <laughs> <laughs> she even does all my posts. and everything. She's all over it. That's great. That she does. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before I let you go? No, look, I, I think if there's you know yoga teachers listening, it's a very exciting time. It's a time of great opportunity to really serve and make a difference i think as i mentioned before we can be at the forefront just start looking for um teachers and opportunities to move it beyond mm. you know take it take it further not just advance asana i'm not talking about that is to take it into the invisible aspects and start to get confidence there because you can really impact change and make a difference in the world and it's going it's really it's really going to get needed more and more so do it <laughs> brilliant i love that well mark thank you so much for generously chatting with me and for the podcast and uh all the best for the rest of your time in australia and what you have to share it's some um, really important work that you're doing in the world so very very grateful awesome thanks thanks amy enjoyed it if this episode was of value to you and your life please subscribe. And if you can think of someone who would benefit from this dialogue, please do them a favor and send it their way. If you feel called, hop on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. This is the best way to get these conversations into the ears and hearts of our wider community, to those who need it most. You can find me at amyelandry.com or over on Instagram at amyelandry. May we all move a little closer to a life living in alignment.